Welcome to the Empower Podcast by Mitchell. Welcome to the Empower Podcast. I'm your host, Shelly Callahan, and today I'm excited to be joined by three of Mitchell Genex Coventry's top regulatory experts to find out what trends they're watching in 2021 and what their predictions are as we head into next year. In this podcast, you'll hear from Brian Allen, Vice President of Government Affairs for Mitchell Pharmacy Solutions, Michelle Hibbert Yakubachi, Senior Vice President of Regulatory Compliance Management for Mitchell Casualty Solutions, and Ben Roberts, Vice President Utilization Management at GenX Services. First, let's set the stage. COVID has, of course, completely changed our world. The nature of work and the economy has changed dramatically. We currently sit at 6.9% unemployment with hopes that the vaccine will help the economy open up more next year. But there has been a seismic shift in how we do that work. A Stanford study from June shows that 42% of the US labor force is now working from home full time. And accounting to an October study, as many as 23 million people plan to move as they permanently work from home. We know that with this comes a need for employers to be more flexible with time to support caregiving. This may be a short-term pandemic need, but what is the longer-term question of how workers' support, safety, and workers' comp claims look in the future? Should your work pay for a comfortable chair? Does tripping in your kitchen now count as a claim? And then there are those jobs that require people to be in-person and frontline workers. This gets into the complicated question of presumptions. We saw many states take early action to enact presumption laws, and it will definitely be interesting to see what next year holds on that topic. For quick reference, this week, quote, CWCI released that as of November 2nd, there have been more than 50,000 COVID-19 claims reported to the Division of Workers' Compensation in California. And that unfortunately included 282 death claims. This translates to one out of nine California job injury claims. And we see that 37% are coming from healthcare workers and about 15% from public safety and government workers. What's of note to me is that the remainder are coming from manufacturing, retail, transportation, and food service. So does this change the conversation about presumptions as similar trends play out nationwide? And is this completely changed the conversation when it comes to communicable diseases? And as these people are in the workplace, there's also a question of COVID testing as well as antibody testing. We see this for people being able to return to work, but also as precursors to surgeries. We're seeing the wholesale adoption of telemedicine, and this has really exploded. It went from 1% in February to 43.5% in April. And Forrester predicts that we'll see 1 billion telemedicine visits by the end of 2020. However, there's still a lot of regulatory questions to work out, such as security, interstate licensing, and reimbursement rates. And finally, while states need to look at these questions, they have a lot on their plates. In addition to managing the pandemic, they're faced with massive COVID-19-related state budget shortfalls. 
the loss of state and local revenue from taxes and rising expenditures associated with COVID-19 are responsible for most of these budgetary shortfalls, and this may affect workers' comp agencies as well. State and local governments have multiple alternatives to address budgetary shortfalls, including cuts in spending, tapping into reserves, accounting adjustments, and revenue enhancements. And while they look for new ways to manage expenses, which this also brings forth topics such as the cost of drugs and potentially new sources of revenue, such as medical marijuana, which leads me right into our first topic with Brian Allen, pharmacy regulations. So Brian, what are the biggest pharmacy regulations you expect to change in 2021? What major items are you tracking in auto and workers' comp? Well, there's a lot going on in the pharmacy world in general, and some of that will spill over into the workers' comp and auto marketplaces. I really fully expect to see a lot more around price transparency. Um, everybody's still trying to get their head around drug pricing and how that, you know, how it's impacted. Uh, what, why is there inflation in drug pricing that's outpacing inflation in the rest of the world? And uh, regulators and, and policymakers are really trying to figure it out. And so I anticipate we'll see more legislation and regulation around those types of things. And I think in other areas, drug formularies, I think drug formularies have proven to be quite successful when the states have mandated those. And um, while we use drug formularies in non-formulary states that are our proprietary formularies, there's a little bit more teeth in them when the state mandates them. And I think it's getting good results. And I think the states are pleased with those results, especially as it relates to controlling opioids. And so I would anticipate to see some more uh, regulation around that. Um, and I think just in general, I think you're seeing um, a real desire on the part of the regulators and the, the various policymakers to kind of get their head around to the, the sort of anomalies that are in the marketplace, like some of the higher cost specialty medications, the compounded medications, and some of the arrangements with some of the mail order pharmacies, you're starting to see some eight uh, attorney general's offices looking into those kinds of things. And so I anticipate we'll see more along that front as well, trying to look for any possible fraudulent or abusive practices that might be creeping into the auto and, and workers' comp marketplaces. Lots to consider. And uh, during the pandemic, I feel like uh, things may have slowed down, but now that um, we see possible vaccines on the horizon and many state houses may have changed. Um, it, we just finished the election. Are there any early indications um, or states that you're particularly looking at? Well, it's interesting because we were anticipating a lot of change and, um, and on election night, it looked like there could be some change, not as much as we anticipated, but as more votes have trickled in and more votes have been counted, and they're still counting votes, and so not every state settled at this point, but it looks like there really wasn't the kind of change that we anticipated. We expected, um, I wouldn't say a blue wave, but at least a ripple, and we didn't even really see that. I mean, if in most in, in most cases in the state legislative arena, the Republicans gained ground and didn't lose ground. Um, we expected a shift in Arizona, at least one of the houses, and that didn't happen. It doesn't look like anyway. Uh, again, there's still votes being counted. But for right now, it looks like things really didn't change all that much, which is kind of surprising given the change that we saw at the national level, uh, at least in the, at, the, at the present level. 
Um, and although if you look at Congress, Republicans gained there too, and still, I guess, too early to call the Senate right now, it looks like the Republicans are going to hang on to it. They'll probably be down one, maybe. Uh, I don't know. It'll depend on what happens with the Georgia runoffs. But it wasn't the kind of change that we expected. But I do think there will be still some policy change because I think voters, uh, employers, and injured workers are all hungry for some additional refinements to the work comp systems in the various states. And so in spite of the fact that there weren't changes, I still think there's been sort of a clarion call to really kind of wake up and listen to the people and, and see what's going on out there and then respond to that. You know, you said, listen to the people. Um, there's some interesting uh, legislation changes regarding medical marijuana. It seems like almost every state, state now has a policy uh, for medical marijuana. And then we saw kind of pushing uh, ahead quite significantly in Oregon. Can you catch us up a little bit about what's going on there? Yeah, and that that's an area that it continues to sort of perplex me when you look at the disconnect between the federal government and what's happening at the state level. And um, and that's something else we can talk to you a little bit about on the drug side too. There's another disconnect that we're starting to see, but let's get through the mar marijuana thing first. Um, so there were a number of states that had marijuana initiatives. Um, Arizona uh, passed recreational marijuana, New Jersey passed uh, recreational marijuana. South Dakota became the first state to pass both medical and recreational at the same time. And Mississippi had a medical marijuana um, ballot initiative, and all of them passed. I mean, there, in some areas, there were close elections in some races, but not in marijuana. Marijuana ran away with it. There wasn't, it wasn't even close, which surprised, I think, a lot of analysts. I think people were expecting it to, to be a lot more, um, you know, close uh, and, and I, a lot more scrutiny on it. But really, the, the voters, I think, have accepted the fact, and I think people generally accept the fact that marijuana is going to be a part of our life going forward. The disconnect is in Congress. Uh, why hasn't Congress done something to reconcile? Uh, and it would make, in some ways, it would make things a lot easier at the state level because right now you can't bank marijuana. Um, it's very, very difficult. It's a kind of a cash business. So it's difficult for states to keep track of revenues and sales because there's not a lot of electronic record. Um, and I think also it's it's tough for injured workers because if they're recommended marijuana, there's a question as to whether or not it'll be reimbursed by the employer. And the employers have questions because they don't know if it's even legal to re reimburse them because it's still illegal at the federal level. And so there's this just huge conundrum that's been, been broiling around really. I mean, it's been around since 1996 when California passed the first medical marijuana law, but it's really come to a head, I think, in the last few years. And Congress just seems unable to really get their head around it and do anything to provide any kind of guidance to the states on what the right direction should be. Um, so we have a federal law that's basically not being enforced and the state's just ignoring it. And so they're they're just not, I mean, Congress just isn't responding. I anticipate under the Biden administration that something will happen there. Um, Biden and uh, Harris have both promised that they wanted to do something about it. So hopefully uh, we'll get some clarity at the federal level on where we go from here. Um, and 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 hopefully that'll open up more clinical study and more science and, and, and make more data available to policymakers so they know when is it appropriate, when isn't appropriate, what can it do, what can't it do. Uh, right now there's a lot of claim out there, but there's not a lot of science behind it. And, and the more science we get, the better able we'll be able to know how to make you know, medical marijuana work in the workers' comp and auto industry. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about where you see states kind of getting ahead of the federal government now is drug pricing is uh, at the manufacturing level is is regulated by the federal government. 
And, you know, the federal government has not been able to do anything to, to rein in drug pricing. So we saw a private group in Utah a few years ago announce that they were going to open up their own generic manufacturing company. And now we have two states that are entertaining. Um, you know, California passed a bill uh, this year, and there's another state considering a bill that would actually allow the state to partner in the in the manufacture of generic drugs. So the states are getting around the federal regulation by doing their own thing and controlling it at the state level. And again, this is another area where Congress is not re is refusing to act, and the states are having to step in and fill that void. And uh, I don't know if it's you know a good thing or a bad thing long term. I mean, obviously, if it creates more competition, it's good, but I'm not sure you know how a state bureaucracy can compete in a private enterprise world. But it remains to be seen. So we're you know again, this is another area where Congress has just kind of abdicated the responsibility, and the states are trying to step in and fill that void. And and uh, we're going to see some more movement, I think, in that area at the state level as well. I think more states will start thinking about it as long as Congress refuses to act. Absolutely fascinating. Lots of, lots of things moving as we roll into the new year. Um, it, generally, what other workers' comp trends are you looking at for next year? Well, one of the areas that's getting a lot of attention uh, because of the pandemic is presumption law. Now, presumptions have been around for first responders really since the World Trade Center um, solution happened at the federal level. Uh, presumptions for first responders at least started to become a little bit more popular at the state level. And we're starting to see um, that those presumptions expanded out to beyond just first responders, but also going to uh, you know other essential workers that might be exposed to the COVID-19 virus. And that I think is a trend that's going to continue. I think a lot of states put a pause on it uh, towards the end of this year um, because they were concerned about what potential costs might be and what kind of um, liability they might be creating for employers. And so there was some uncertainty there in the minds of policymakers. But I think as some of the states have done it, as those results come in, you may see some states go back and say, maybe we should take a look at this and, and analyze it further and see if there's you know, an opportunity there to maybe do something. And so I think presumption laws are going to be front and center in the in the 2021 legislative sessions. I think that it's it's a very popular issue with workers, not so popular with employers, obviously. Um, but and so there'll be that, you know, that kind of give and take that happens in the legislative process around these issues. And and, uh, you know, hope, hopefully they come to good solutions. I mean, you don't want anyone who truly is legitimately exposed at work to not get the benefits that they should get. But by the same token, it's so tough to know where people are getting it. And I mean, that's as evidence now by the surge that's occurring across the country. I mean, we have this huge surge that's happening now in almost every, well, actually all over the world. And no one can quite put their finger around why all of a sudden to start surging. You know, is it kids in school? You know, is it family gatherings? Is it what, you know, I mean, is people just getting more casual about it? I don't really know the answer. And so, I mean, employers obviously have that question, why I don't wanna pay for something that really wasn't really work-related either. So you've got that balance that has to occur and there's gonna be that, that give and take in the legislative process, but hopefully they'll come up with some solutions that make sense and, and maybe the best solutions for some states will be do nothing. Their laws may be already adequate enough to cover it for injured workers. And, you know, again, it's all boiled down to causation and, you know, having a presumption that sort of circumvents that causation notion and so it can create some issues for employers if they're trying to figure out, you know, when they really are responsible for a COVID-19 uh, infection with an employee.
Fascinating. And uh, hopefully in a year or so, we, we won't have to worry quite so much about it. So fingers crossed. Yeah, um, we only hope. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. Um, Michelle, do you have other workers' compensation trends that you're following for 2021? Yes, Shelley, we are following telemedicine quite uh, closely in the majority of the states. What we're seeing, of course, is a resurgence in the use of telemedicine in states that are shut down during the pandemic. And it's caused a lot of bulletins to be issued by the insurance departments on how to proceed, how to bill, how to pay, those types of things, up to and including Medicare putting out edicts and rules on how to pay. It's been an interesting environment. And our, the trend that we're watching is, will those bulletins be actually adopted and put into law once we get into more of a normal type of environment? Say, uh, we're looking at after the second quarter next year when we feel like you know the immunizations will be out or the vaccine will be out, uh, folks will be going back to work. Is this here to stay? We do believe it is here to stay. Uh, so we're really anxious to see how the legislatures take up these bulletins, these emergency uh, edicts by the Department of Insurances in the states. So it's going to be some interesting times. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the things that was on my mind as we've gone through the past year was telemedicine is being reimbursed at the same rate as an office visit, um, which I, I think is kind of interesting. Do you see that changing or any pushback on that? Um, not at this time. The same amount of time is taken by a lot of the practitioners for the office visit as an in-person visit. But I don't know about you guys, but I've been having my own wellness visits uh, this year, and it's it's kind of funny. I, I think I should have done a telemedicine visit because my practitioner didn't touch me with a 10-foot pole, sat across the room from me, could have accomplished the same thing in the time spent. Uh, what is being reported by consumers is that they feel that there's more one-on-one -on -one attention during the telemedicine visit with less distractions from the office, et cetera. So um, I think the office visits are definitely here to stay. We're seeing an interesting dynamic with the types of therapies that are being administered through telemedicine, telehealth. For example, instructions on how to do appropriate exercises uh, to rehab a patient are being done by physical therapists in the orthopedic office. So, and looking at, you know, post-op wounds, those types of things, uh, of course, with video and talking to the patient. So it's been a very interesting time to see if these will really pan out that, you know, what really guides a lot of what we do in the doctor's office is your malpractice um, and ensuring that everything is done correctly, that you did all your diligence you needed to do. So that remains to be seen. It's still too early to tell on that front. Well, it's it's so interesting because it's really opened up um, the, I guess, leveling the playing field for a lot of people where um, maybe you were in a more remote location and instead of driving two hours to see a physician, maybe you could do that on telemedicine. So I think there's a lot of opportunity and um, excited to see what happens in the next year and uh, talk to you again on that.
you said it. Well, thanks, Michelle. I'm also wondering specifically on hot topics about auto casualty right now. I know 2021 is a huge year for Michigan and the no-fault new fee schedule regulations that are going into place in July. A lot has changed um, since they were first announced. So what are you looking for in the next few months? Well, in the next few months for Michigan, we're really looking at further defining and gaining more clarity on what the intent of the legislation, Senate Bill 1, um, on the processing of the bills. We still have a ton of outstanding questions, and it's really more of a clarification on our lessons learned on implementing Medicare-like fee schedules for PIP in Pennsylvania and in Florida. So we have the same questions that we had when we implemented in those states. Uh, Pennsylvania implemented in 1990, and um, you know, of course, decades later, Florida picked it up. We still had a lot of ambiguity on those implementations, like what part of the Medicare fee schedule was appropriate to implement. A lot of that stuff, it has played out in the courts and the definitions and case law, et cetera. We're hoping that to get more definition because nobody wants to go to court. That's an expense that the carriers don't want to bear. It causes policy uh, costs to go up and premiums to rise. Uh, the more litigation you have, the more problems you have in trying to manage the claims. So it's it's really beneficial to get that kind of clarity going in. One of the big questions that we see going in is a very simple question. Medicare has two fee schedules. They have one for those practitioners that do not participate in the Medicare system. There's another fee schedule for those that do called the participating. And in all the fee schedules that we use in workers comp auto today, it's the participating that is used. But in Michigan, they did not tell us which one that we should be using. So that is a lingering question out there. If you use the limiting, you you can pay anywhere between eight to fifteen percent more than the participating. So it's that's an issue. We also have lots and lots of questions on um, some of the Medicare rules on the zero pays in Medicare. Like for example, hot pack is a, doesn't have a fee schedule amount associated with it in Medicare. Uh, that's a big ticket item in Michigan today, and it's paid for quite extensively. So we end up paying the charge master or the average charge for that. So setting up systems to accommodate those zero pays in our solutioning uh, is challenging, but very doable, and that's what we're working on. Some of the um, biggest areas that we are already seeing moving in the legislature or our concerns are what we call carve-outs of the fee schedule. And House Bill 5858 was introduced in June of this year to carve out from the fee schedule what they're calling post-acute care. And this is uh, the care that's administered during the rehabilitation phase to a patient. Um, many of the uh, rehabilitation codes were in that zero pay category, paying the provider 55% of what they charge for their charge masters, a new fee schedule. And these providers are saying that they're going to lose their business. They can't live off of that. They'll go out of business. 
and they propose new fee schedules. Uh, so the, that's House Bill 5858. It's been it's in committee. It's being reviewed by lobbyists, et cetera, on whether or not something like that will pass. That to me and to us is just the beginning of what could happen this legislative uh, season is other carve outs. Like, will we see carve outs for chiropractic services? Will we see carve outs for um, certain types of ambulatory surgical procedures? It's just not known at this time, but there's a lot of discussion about it. Fascinating. There, there are so many things that once you pass a bill that still need to be discussed and put into correct implementation. And um, thank goodness we have experts and connections so we can talk through all those pieces. Um, and are there other legislation um, or bills that you see coming down the line in auto that we should also be considering as you look ahead in the 2021 um, year and and what states are doing? Well, you know, before COVID, we had what we were paying attention to, which was, uh, you know, legislatures were looking at the limits on um, like PIP, in example, for example, the, as I mentioned, Pennsylvania, uh, they had their new reform passed in 1990 medical care in 1990 cost a whole lot different than it does in 2020 and 2021 so the limit in that state for pip was five thousand dollars under first party claims that's all you would get uh, unless you had some add-ons so they were looking at doubling that to ten thousand uh, moving down to the other PIP uh, state down south to Florida, they were looking at actually getting rid of it altogether and becoming a, you know, going back to being a tourist state, which is a very long time ago. There was a lot of uh, bills being considered in every single legislative uh, session that we were working on uh, leading up to next, uh, uh, next year. However, COVID sort of put a damper on a lot of what was being discussed in the legislature. And I think the other thing that we found too is what was planned before COVID pandemic um, all of a sudden is showing uh, that that was not the most important thing. Telemedicine, even in auto, is being you know paid for by the auto carrier. COVID testing, would you have ever thought that you would be tested? be responsible for paying for COVID testing in, under the auto claim, well, you're still guided by health departments in states like New Jersey, where if you want to have that ambulatory, that elective surgery, you've got to be COVID tested before you can have it. So ah, those that under, makes sense. Yeah, they, they, you know, fall under those areas of the policy or um, they need to be negotiated. So these things were never con contemplated before, and now they are. So we're looking at things like that, um, especially under, under first party. And third party, uh, we're seeing a lot of states increase their limits um, on what is what is paid under collision and medical, et cetera. So we, we saw that before COVID, and that to us will continue on um, through next year.
You know, Michelle, that that kind of brings up in my mind, are the are the costs ever pinned to, let's say, inflation rates? You know, you mentioned that 5,000 was 30 years ago, and, and now it seems like something maybe they'd look at to tie to the increasing cost of healthcare, or is that something that they've even considered? That's really what that Pennsylvania bill is all about, or was about. Uh, we, they'll have to, of course, come up with a new one at, at some point, but um, yeah, it was all tied to inflation. I mean, 30 years of inflation, at least 3% year over year, sometimes five. I mean, come on, that $5,000 doesn't go very far. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for your expertise and for helping us stay on top of all these trends and, and talking to all of our customers about how these pieces of legislation really impact their program. Uh, so if, if people have additional questions about their specific program and how these laws may or may not impact them, they can absolutely reach out to us. Um, Michelle is and her team uh, happy to chat with you more. Um, so thanks, Michelle. We'll, uh, we'll take a look at what's going on and come back to you. Uh, now, more specifically, I wanted to ask Ben, what regulatory changes are you keeping an eye out for in 2021 when it comes to case management? So the the main thing that I'm focused on is, you know, from a managed care and case management perspective, is really around opioids. I think that opioids is a topic that we focused on a lot over the last several years, but maybe in 2020 has not been a focus from a regulatory perspective. And I, I think that's come back. And there's a few reasons for that. You know, over the last several years, the majority of states have done a really good job of putting forth policies and legislation to curb the impact of opioids in their populations. And successful states have used a combination of prescription drug formularies, drug monitoring programs, utilization review controls, evidence-based treatment guidelines, and provider education. But there's still a few states who are lagging behind, and they should be looking towards the success of their neighbors. One of those states in particular, Louisiana, uh, has been a state where we've actually seen opioid prescriptions continue to increase despite legislative efforts that have been enacted but have not quite made it all the way there and failed. And so I would expect a state like Louisiana to continue to try to pass additional legislation to, to continue to curb the opioid abuse and the increase in prescriptions in their state. But even states with positive momentum can't rest on that. We're seeing an increase in opioid-related drug overdoses this year. It's up almost 13% on average over last year. And this is after several years of a positive downward trend in opioid-related overdose. So it's concerning that we're seeing that increase. It's especially concerning that we're seeing that increase occur during a period where antagonists like naloxone are not just being prescribed and distributed more widely than ever before, but they're also being administered with greater frequency. And so we can't ignore the fact that um, we are getting better at preventing opioid deaths through naloxone and tools like that, but we're seeing them increase as well. We also can't ignore the, the 
impact of the pandemic on opioids and how that has uh, affected opioid prescribing, as well as affected some states and their ongoing legislation. States like New York and Montana have delayed additional formulary controls, and most states have lightened uh, controls around prescribing. And so we have to be concerned about how those the lessening of those controls has impacted opioids in those jurisdictions. Legislatures and states that haven't put forth meaningful efforts will hopefully be refocused on this during 20 and 2021. And jurisdictions where progress has been delayed by the pandemic will also be need to, needing to watch their, their opioid prescribing closely. Another area of focus that will likely occur is with states that have pending or overdue regulations following previous legislative measures. Just as a, a couple of examples, we have Michigan who SB1 last year and we're still waiting on final regulations. That's a, that's a uh, piece of legislation around auto liability utilization review. And uh, we need those final regulations to push that process forward. Another jurisdiction, California, passed SB 1160, uh, sadly in, in 2016. And we're still waiting on the final regulations to finalize the last portions of, of the implementation process. And that will really affect the utilization review process in California and anyone, any payer or managed care organization that utilization review will be significantly impacted once those are released. And we do expect those states to push those things forward in 2021. I, it continues to be very interesting to watch how the opioid crisis um, morphs as we go from pandemic time to moving into um, 2021 when hopefully we'll be able to uh, get back to a, a new normal I'll say. Um, so uh, thank you so much Ben, Brian and Michelle for all your great thoughts. Um, to round out the podcast I wanted to ask everyone if you had to pick just one thing what's your biggest prediction for 2021? Um, ben let's start with you. Thanks Shelley. I, I think the biggest prediction or biggest implication uh, and thing that's going to happen in 2021 is really around our shifting workforce. We've seen this major shift in 2020 as a result of the pandemic with almost the entire U.S. workforce being mobilized to work from home aside from those who are, were essential in office workers. Uh, right now I've seen that it's data shows that about 42 percent of the US labor force is working from home right now, which is a huge increase over prior, prior numbers. And it's expected that 25 to 30% will continue to work from home post pandemic. And I really think this is gonna create some really challenging uh, implications in workers' compensation in particular. If we think about how now the boundaries of where we are performing work and work responsibilities are shifting and changing from a workplace, from an office, from a cubicle to a home, to a kitchen table, to a uh, uh, an office in the basement like I'm in. Uh, we have all of these different locations that are not necessarily ideal for 
uh, worker safety. And not that our homes are naturally unsafe, but it's interesting that if we think about um, uh, just in workers' compensation in general, we have spent years developing arising out of and in the course of and coming and going rules and regulations and case laws interpreted those things to determine how and when an injury should be accepted and when it should not be. And that's really going to shift. Courts are really going to have to str struggle to interpret those the prior laws, prior case law, as we move forward into this new environment. Uh, just thinking of a few examples, if we think about like work from home ergonomics, you know, on a laptop on your couch is much different than sitting in a company provided chair at a desk with a keyboard. It appropriate? Those sorts of things uh, are now need to be considered as we consider workers' compensation liability. Another thing is uh, offices, as something as simple as commercial versus residential building codes. Is my stairwell in my home as safe as the stairwell in my office? The railing spacing is different. Those sorts of things. Also in my home, there, there might be toys and things for my children on the, on the stairs. There's more and different risks in those areas. And I think it will be really important to understand how liability extends to payers. And in 2021, we're going to start to see the beginnings of some of that interpretation. And it's going to be really important that the courts begin to understand and, and rule on those things so that we have clarity so that the future underwriting process can begin and that we can appropriately measure what the liability may be in workers compensation in this new shifted work from home culture that we have all adopted over the last nine months you're so right i mean even even chatting today here, um, we can tell that we're both in our home offices, and I use the term office very loosely. I'm in my kitchen. You'll hear a little bit of glitchiness uh, in the recording, just because we're um, we're learning how to to do different work uh, from different spaces. So um, massive shift in people moving. Um, out of offices and um, just just changing our whole world. Um, so definitely we'll keep an eye out for how that happens as we go into the next year. And um, Michelle, what do you think? What's your big prediction for 2021? My biggest prediction for 2021, again, falls into the telehealth world. Um, uh, looking at what's going on, it will be more operationalized be more accepted. It'll be part of the criteria. And I know Ben talks about managed care and about utilization review. Seeing that is, is not surprising on the claim, uh, but operationalizing it and knowing that it's acceptable as someone that is managing claims, adjusters, et cetera, that to me is going to be some of the biggest game changers in 2021 are the acceptability of telemedicine, telehealth, tele-rehab, mental health done over telemedicine. It's, there's a litany of them. They still need to be defined. I love that. And I just, I think it's such a game changer for the entire world, not just within our, our little space. So I'm, I'm very excited about it. And to round it out, we come back to you, Brian. What's your big regulatory prediction for 2021? 
Well, my big prediction uh, is, is really, I think it's centers around marijuana and Congress. And I, I really expect that in 2021, they're actually going to do something to reconcile that difference between where the states are at and where the federal government's, government's at as it relates to, to marijuana. And I believe what they'll do is allow states to regulate it like they do alcohol and let each state kind of defi decide for themselves what the right policy is. Another great prediction. I wanted to thank Brian, Michelle, and Ben again for joining me today and sharing your thoughts as we head into the new year. Join us online for our annual reviews and more information. You can visit us at empower.mitchell.com. And thank you for listening to the Empower Podcast. I'm your host, Shelly Callahan. This is Shelly Callahan powering down the Empower Podcast by Mitchell. Join the conversation and read articles on our website, mitchell.com empower.